Hello and welcome to the second episode of our Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution by the Group of International Communists Reading Group Series. Today is Saturday the 5th of June 2021 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we take on the first half of Chapter 2, this time without the recording gremlins that plagued the first episode. If you'd like to join in the reading group or would like to hear some extra bonus episodes, head on over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. This week I got the new patron Evan Bancroft and the returning patron Wes to thank. Okay, let's jump straight in. Welcome to the second session of the Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution Reading Group. Today we're going to tackle the first half of the longest chapter in the book, chapter two. We're going to do 15 pages. They are sections A through D. The second chapter is called The Social Democratic Revision of Marxism. This is a really kick-ass 15 pages, I think. So we're going to start with A, the social work and the organizational forms in which capital dominates this work are confused. So does anyone want to chuck their hand up if they want to do a little read of this next session? Alex, there we go. Take it away. The radical social democracy, Bolsheviks, and the reformist have both revised the Marxist doctrine precisely in the decisive point of the association of free and equal producers. In the Marxist sense, the socialization of the working process is nothing other than the fact that the production of commodities becomes the dominant mode of production in the course of development. More and more surplus of producers work exclusively for the market. Everyone produces what he does not consume himself, and the, and the manufactured product is for others. Everyone thereby does social work, everyone works for society. Capitalism itself is the great revolutionary who, in the course of development, tore producers away from their old mode of production and threw them into the service of capital in a working process that abolished the old patriarchal working conditions that broke every relationship with the personal family. Capitalism brought everyone into a state that everyone, stripped of all possessions, has nothing but his naked labour force to participate in the socialised labour process. Social democracy did, and does, something completely different about the process of the socialisation of production. It saw the constant progress of social production in the continuous growth of trust, syndicate and cartel formation. It saw socialisation in the form in which the social mode of production organised itself. In reality, this is nothing other than the form in which the private capitalist or collective capitalist right of disposal of the means of production, over social work and over the social product is organised and concentrated. Social democracy confuses the specific capitalist forms of organisation of the domination of social work with social work itself. This confusion also occurs among the Bolsheviks, who see communism as a national economy modelled on modern state-owned enterprises such as railways and postal services. It is no wonder that in this confusion of concepts, the view of socialism also takes a completely different direction from the Marxist view of social work. Both for radical social democracy and reformist democracy, the vertical trust the capitalist form of the organisation of the production process, from the raw material to the finished product, thus becomes the ideal state of the communist mode of production. As Lenin said, to organise the whole economy on the lines of the postal service 
That is our immediate aim. It is obvious that the way to socialism is thus portrayed to the working class in the sense that it conquers political power, seizes the state, and at the same time has the central apparatus of production created by capital itself in its hands. Thus, the well-known left-wing Marxist Parvus shows how easy the transition from large-scale industry to state production can be. The same goes for Rudolf Hilferding. That means nothing other than that our generation is faced with the problem of transforming with the help of the state, with the help of conscious social regulation, this economy organized and led by the capitalists into an economy led by the democratic state. Okay, so I suppose like the key line is the one that's underlined here on page 27. Social democracy confuses the specific capitalist forms of organization of the domination of social work with social work itself. Okay, so let's let's pick that one apart. The process of capital dominating social work leading towards, you know, the cartel or the monopoly. You know, that's the position every capitalist wants to be in. They don't want to be in a competitive market. They want to be the last man standing where they can have monopoly rents or in a cartel where they can organize monopoly rents. So like they're confusing this process of concentration of capital, which is the domination of social work under capitalism with social work itself. You know, the idea of the the society of free and equal producers with the idea of a large, you know, cartel, huge companies being run by the state. Kilter. What's it mean here when it's saying social work? Because I would say work in general, this would be true for. So why is it it calling out social work here? Well, as opposed to self-sufficient work. So he's trying to make the case that prior to capitalism, a lot of people might have been quite self-sufficient. So their work wouldn't have been social. You know, the work would have been for themselves self-sufficient but like once you are in the marketplace and you are working in a factory and you're selling your labor power you work as a team to produce products for other people to use and even like people farmers who think under capitalism i i have a farm i am self-sufficient but really in, in effect they're producing output for a society to sell in the market so even though they're they might think of themselves as independent their work is actually for society, it, it's social, it's not for themselves. Alex? Yeah, I, I, do we think they're quite accurate when they say that, you know, the socialization of the working process is nothing other than the fact that the production of quantities becomes the dominant mode of production? I mean, it, it, I mean Mark says it, it's a consequence of that, and you can't really have capitalization without socialization of production. But to say that this, it's the be-all and, and end-all, and it's nothing more than that, that just doesn't seem accurate to me, I don't think. Sorry, Alex, which part do they say that? They do. It's in the first couple of sentences. In the Marxist sense, the socialisation of the working process is nothing other than the fact that the blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's a bit strongly put. <laughs> I, 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 I think so, yeah. You could say primarily or something I mean, like that. I, and really by socialization, they're a little vague on what they mean by it. I mean, I think really what they mean is the bad bits of production. Well, not so much the, the bad bits. You know, the socialization of, of working process, say in England in the 17th century, 18th century, a lot of that was actually done through, you know, destruction of the commons and all, all of that type of stuff. You know, primitive accumulation. 
So that was actually the socialization of the working process, which was tied hand and fist with the production of commodities. So it was, but you can imagine like a socialized production without commodities, which yeah, they're saying is synonymous. I don't think that's true. That's true. Yeah, they've done that in places like South America, I think, in the Incas and places like that. They had socialized production without commodity production. So that is true. They didn't even have a money farm. So you are correct there. Okay, anybody, any other? I mean, stronger than that. I mean, so you can you have socialized production without, you know, without capitalism, you know, production for the purpose of, you know, without, you know, the CMC, MC cycle. So give us an example. Well, surely in the Soviet, you know, in the Soviet Union, they weren't producing for profit just to, like, you know, invest more capital to create more profit. Yeah. Okay. So they were producing. Uh, they were doing it though, produce surplus, and to invest, reinvest in productivity. So, like the Soviet Union is kind of like a very strange case where you have a lot of the capitalist forms still appearing. Even the the, the firms in Soviet Union actually did have profit and loss on their books, yes. on their own internal factory kind of rubles. So they kind of were operating on profit and loss. So like you kind of would say that was commodity production. I think they did have commodity production in the Soviet Union, but they didn't have all the aspects of the value form. They didn't really have competition because the state used to just obviously often just write off all the profits and the losses. Sure. Emil would like to speak. Well, actually, the, the underlying bit is clearer in English than in the original Dutch that I've read. <laughs> so I had some question mark raised up, and now it becomes clear that they're talking about monopoly capitalism and having that. Um, by the way, though, the whole debate about the Soviet Union being state capitalist is still coming up, so maybe we can park that. But um, it's it's uh, one of my main gripes with this book, actually. I don't think the term state capitalism makes much sense because of the many... Uh, well, it, it's not a capitalist society, I think. But anyway, that's, that's a different debate that will still be... Uh, uh, that's still coming up. But yeah, that, um, I think that's the, the underlines a bit over here, uh, social democracy. I think that's actually one of the main critique points of the book regarding not only social democracy, but also the official communist parties of the, I'm not sure what the English uh, term is that they use, but the big cartel uh, production. So basically having, that, that is still, by the way, an idea that, that you see on the left, for example, within um, the Trotskyist left, like the CWI and stuff like that, that have, basically they say, well, if you only we nationalize uh, the top what, whatever it is, the top 100 companies or the top 500 companies or whatever it is. The commanding, the commanding heights. Commanding heights, yes, exactly. Then, then we will have socialism. And that's just... I, I've always had issues with that idea. And th this book really comes to terms with what the actu issues actually are with that, with that idea. But that, that's, uh, that, that's a very old idea that, that that's how has always existed in, in the, the old social democratic left and that the communist left have uh, inherited, really, going back to Hilferding, Kautsky, Lenin, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Alan would like to speak. I wonder if maybe Marx and Engels can get some of the blame for that, because if you go back to the manifesto, the, their kind of list of immediate demands, a lot of that could easily be interpreted as oh, we need to, uh, you know, centralize everything in the hands of the state. Yeah, the, the Communist Manifesto 
is not a very developed Marx and Engels, I think. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. With, with respect to Emil, you talking about the state capitalism. Yeah, like I, that's not a debate we, I want to get into repeatedly on the show. We all know what they're... I think we, we may take the state capitalism as a kind of a shorthand for whatever the hell the Soviet Union was going forward. You know, and that like whether we agree with it as a, you know, a bureaucratic dictatorship or a state capitalist or a non-mode of production along the hillel Tickton lines. We all kind of know what the point they generally are trying to make. That's kind of, we can just use it as a shorthand from now on. When we use state capitalism, we'll just, we'll just use it as a shorthand for what, what we all kind of understand as the problems of Soviet system. Alex, I think, wanted to say something. Yeah, just briefly, I think we're not going to be able to avoid the state capitalism thing because it's coming up in the next section. Oh, damn. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dad, this is the general view of communist production that we find in all shades within social democracy. The differences only occur when it comes to the means, to the tactics with which one wants to achieve the social state. The reformist social democracy wanted through universal suffrage, exploiting bourgeois democracy. It wants to conquer this bourgeois capitalist state and through it, subjugate the organizations of capital. However, the reality is that the state, with the social democrats in government, is subdued by the organization of capital. The radical social democracy, Bolsheviks, is resolutely fighting this policy. It propagates the annihilation of the bourgeois state in revolution and the formation of new political power by the political organization of the working class, the state of the proletarian dictatorship. Through this state, a central economic organization is to be created by revolutionary means after the model of the capitalist trust, Lenin, in which the enterprises and industries are taken up as far as they are right for it. In other words, the branches of industry that are sufficiently concentrated by capital to be accepted into state administration are to be nationalised. Okay, yeah, this is to me a, a very, very clarifying page in the book, which really put my kind of ideas, you know, I've, I'm absolutely not a specialist in the Soviet Union in the history or of Lenin. It's a, it's a big hole in my knowledge. What I know about it is not from doing the study or doing the reading. I know it from like listening to things, watching a few lectures here and there. You know, probably more than a few, but I I don't consider myself to have an, any type of knowledge on this area. But I, I still found this paragraph extraordinarily clarifying. Like I remember there's a clip on YouTube if people want to go and find it's pretty good. It's like there's somebody from one of these uh I think it was I think it was the old the, the Spartacus League or something in, in, in America asking a question of Chomsky or basically in some Q&A after some speech from Chomsky in the, I would think the early 80s, maybe late 70s. And like they accused Chomsky of like blah, blah, blah. I don't know, shitting on the Soviet Union or something. I can't remember exactly. But Chomsky comes back and has goes into this diatribe against Lenin, you know, and in it, like he he, he talks about how Lenin was actually linked to the right wing of the social pede. You know, he was linked to the right wing of the socialist movement at the time. And I, I, knew, I knew enough to know that I don't know anything about it. So I'm not going to make any decision on that. But like this page to me made a lot of sense because while Lenin was very radical, like, you know, he was a revolutionary and I think he can be best described from my understanding as like very Jacobin, in his behavior, you know, revolutionary 
socialist, absolutely. But his economic policies and understandings were of the right of the SPD. So it was more a disagreement over strategy of how you get to a system where you have a, a price policy system, let's just call it that for short. He wasn't economically on the left wing of the SPD. I think that's kind of what this thing is getting to. I found this extremely clarifying. It made like a simple page like this made so much of this socialist history that you can get bogged down in sectum and this, that, and the other. And this was extremely, extremely clarifying. Does anybody want to say anything about this section? Alex? Yeah, I don't think they're being fair to Lenin. The bit about the the reformist wing, yeah, absolutely. We saw, I can't remember the name of the MP who was told off, apparently, for making a a, a Labour MP who was told off for what was what Stomach called an anti-business statement. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, that that very much fits in with, um, you know, democratic socialists and the right wing Labour Party and so on. But I, I don't think this kind of structure was an aim of Lenin's. So they, they reference in the, the, the little later on the uh, 1922 speech to the Congress of, of whoever. Basically, Lenin says many times, we are shit at running large scale industry. We don't know how to do it. We're great at doing a revolution and we don't have the first idea how to run large scale industry. And we're going to lose the goodwill of the peasants real soon, unless we, 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 we do something. This is why we need to get capitalists with decades of experience to help run it. Not suggesting that this time top-down structure is necessarily a, a, a specific aim, a long-term aim. Uh, I think I've read quite a lot of stuff, though. I would push back on you, Alex, there, like, to the contrary perhaps not exactly in this book, but like I've, we did a paper, we read a paper by Shojin Zhang, a Korean, South Korean Marxist, where he was looking at all the planning that was done in the Soviet Union. And there was, there was like a lot of, a lot of very direct quotes there. So, well, maybe it's, maybe it's more debatable, but I think there's quite a good bit of evidence to say that this is accurate. The author, uh, the translator Herman has done another book with the same title where he kind of does a kind of reimagining a discussion of it for today and there is a couple of extra quotes in there from both Trotsky and Lenin along these lines so uh, I'm not arguing that this didn't happen I'm no not, yeah I agree but I, it was the aim the, the you know the initial aim of, of the Bolsheviks to do this yeah like I, I don't know like we who know who I, who I think there's good that? evidence yeah I think there's good evidence to say that it probably was but that's not to say that I'm you know, I could be wrong. That's the way I would say it. from my from my what I've read. Like I don't, I don't think it really matters whether they wanted it or not for our purposes. You know, that's a kind of a historical debate. The proof was in the pudding that they ended up there. Like that's the most important thing. Whether that was what they wanted or just the dynamics of their material conditions at the time. But we can see the problems with ending up there. Let's put it that way. Anybody else want to come in here? Okay, Slavic Dreams. I think later in the chapter, it basically talks about how they didn't really lay out a specific plan for how workers could integrate into communist production without capitalists. And I think that kind of missing gap in how to include workers' councils and such in the production planning perhaps indicates... I don't know. That to me sounds like a pretty big gap in in the aims. 
I feel like that that would have been something that they would have deliberately kind of made sure to comment on. Yeah, I I think that's a a fair point. You know, it for something so crucial as to the nature of the society post revolution. But then again, there was also in in that in in Lenin's defense, there was also a lot of stuff of fear of utopian type thinking. So I think also Alan wanted to say something. I think it, it just kind of gets to what you were saying, Tom, about the, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, the, this sentence here, I think, gets it in a nutshell. I, I just wanted to kind of read over that again, just because I, I just feel like that's you could you could sum up the entire like history of, you know, communist development, I guess, in the 20th century anyway. Of However, the reality is that the state with the social Democrats in government is subdued by the organization of capital. I just feel like that's it right there definitely the case in you know I, the, he makes the case that that lenin was like a revolutionary social democrat as opposed to a bourgeois parliamentary social democrat uh, i kind i do agree with that personally but definitely social democrats in government that is absolutely 100% the case kielce wants to had his hand up kielce yeah that that sentence is beautiful but the book was written in the 1930s so i was wondering if anyone had any thoughts on which government specifically they might have been thinking about when when they when they wrote that section? Uh, which social, reformist social democracies were there during that period that uh, that were expunged by, by by capital rather than the the bourgeoisie pushing back? Well, I think it was initially written in the about 1923. So, but like this was the second edition. But definitely, I think the Germans, the German SPD, would have been probably their main target. When I read it, I I think that's. Literally, he's firing shots at Kautsky and SPD. Okay, let's give Alex and his lovely Liverpool tones a bit of a rest. Who wants to take on the reading of this section? Chris. Nationalizing and socializing. Although Marx did not give a description of communist economic life, there can be no doubt that, in his opinion, the regulation of production should come about in bold, not by the state, but through the connection of the free association of a socialist society. A view which, according to reformist Kunov, or Kunow, Marx adopted from the liberal anarchist movements of his time, management and administration of production should fall directly to the producers and consumers themselves and not on the detour via the state. The equality of state and society is only an invention of the later years. In the years 1880 to 90, this point of view was still shared by social democracy. So said, e.g., the old Liebknecht in a speech on the occasion of the attempts to bring the railways, coal mines, and other large industries into state administration. The more bourgeois society realizes that in the long run, it cannot defend itself against the onslaught of socialist ideas, the closer we are to the moment when state socialism will be proclaimed in full earnestness. And the last struggle that social democracy will will have to fight will be fought not under the battle cry, here social democracy, there state socialism. Q now remarks, accordingly, the party Congress declared itself against uh, nationalization for social democracy and state socialism are irreconcilable opposites. 
This position was abandoned at the turn of the century while the nationalization or communal management of enterprises was presented as a gradual advancement towards socialism. In social democratic terminology, such enterprises are also called public enterprises, although the producers have nothing to do with their administration and management. This little bit, again, like it's just goddamn fire. This, this, this stuff is pure fire. So they're talking about something that we spent probably 42 episodes of the Revolutionary Strategy series trying to get to some kind of idea around. And this was like this idea that, you know, the original sin for the SPD was the merger of the Eisenachers, like the Marxist left, and the Lasallians, who I think it's fair to say morphed into a kind of a social democratic wing. And that the the problem with the SPD was trying to merge these two types of forces together. We see that one became dominant and what happened to the party when, you know, the white hot heat of World War One came around. We saw it split, we saw it splinter in every which way. And that the original sin was in this linking these two parties together. And, and here we see the expression of that original sin. The idea that we had the Karl Liebknecht talking about how, you know, if we get into this idea that, you know, nationalizing industries is the end goal. You know, that's kind of the end of our that's that that's the end of our of our battle for socialism we've already lost. And by we see here by the by the turn of the century that this contradiction had already kind of played out in that this idea of Marx and Engels for the connection of free associations of a socialist society being replaced with a state socialism. I've talked enough. Anybody wants to put up their hand about this bit? Chris? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of how uh, LaSalle lets uh, Bismarck in through the back door here, right, with uh, social democracy, basically just as a palliative for capitalism. I, that's just kind of the remark I was tossing around in my head. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, Emil would like to speak. Yeah, I was. I also marked this uh, last uh, bit, this last paragraph, and again we see that this is actually, well, really the inherited view of the current far left, or really the pretty much the entire left, to 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 have this idea of nationalizing and and putting into the state hands the uh, large part of the economy of the entire or, or the entire economy. What I was wondering was. Uh, what were the debates, the economic views before the 1900s, before this debate was settled? And it's not really that, that clear to me how the debates were at that time uh, before this was the, the dust was 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 really settled and that all uh, everyone just became a nationalist <laughs> in that sense. So it was it just the was it the the, the orthodox or the classical uh, Marx view or or uh, was it something else? Uh, what, what were the views and then? I, I'm wondering about that. Good question, Emil. I've n- I really don't have any any answer. Maybe somebody in the in the session here might know more than me. But probably somebody like might be good at answering these things. Might be Ben Lewis. I know has been doing a lot of research into the archives of the old SPD papers. I'm going to get him on actually to talk 
about some stuff in the future, hopefully, about, you know, all these splits with the KAPD and the KPD and, and all this stuff that happened there. So that's actually something I might bring up with them. I think Alan might have raised his hand as well, too, jumped up very quickly. I guess I just had a little bit to say on this uh, about equality of state and society being an invention of the later years. I don't know the historical side of that to say, you know, later years or anything, but it just seems uh, important to me that the this this book is apparently coming from the perspective of, uh, I guess, really deep skepticism that the, the state can kind of stand in realistically or, or, or truthfully for society itself, even with a, a democratic state, I guess. So like, because if we believe that maybe through a democratic form of the state that uh, it can be a real, you know, picture or a real representation of the will of society, then it would be really easy to fall into this thinking of state controlled enterprises being the will of the people or, you know, something like that. Yes, I concur. Will we try the next bit, Chris? Yeah, sure. Um, the Russian Revolution also took place in the spirit of the nationalization of industry. Here, too, the ripe branches of industry were incorporated into the central state apparatus. In 1917, the producers began to expropriate the owners of various companies, much to the discomfort of those who wanted to manage the and administer economic life from above. The workers wanted to organize production on new bases according to communist rules. Instead of these rules, they were fobbed off with empty words. The Communist Party issued guidelines according to which companies had to form trusts in order to bring them under central administration. What could not be included in the central right of disposal was returned to the owners because these companies were not yet ripe. The first all-Russian Congress of Economic Councils passed the following resolution accordingly. In the field of production organization, the final nationalization is necessary. It is necessary to move from the nationalization of individual enterprises, so far 304, to the consequential nationalization of the industry. Nationalization may not be an occasional nationalization. It may only be carried out by the Supreme Economic Council or the Council of People's Representatives with the approval of the Supreme Economic Council. So, the Communist Party did not give guidelines according to which the workers themselves could integrate their enterprises into the communist economic life. And it did not give guidelines according to which management and administration actually passed to society. For them, the liberation of the workers was not the work of the workers themselves, but the implementation of communism was a function of the men of science, the intellectuals, the statisticians, and so on. The Communist Party believed it only needed to chase away the old industrial leaders and take command of the work itself to direct everything to the safe haven of communism. The working class was just good enough to sweep away the old rulers of labor and put new ones in their place. Their function did not go further, and it could not go further either, because generally established rules of production did not provide the basis for self-organization. The Bolsheviks, 
who are forcefully proclaiming to the world that they are consistent followers of Marx would do well to be a little less noisy. They are consistent in revising Marx because the transformation of the socialization of production as Marx saw it into the nationalization of the ripe enterprises is nothing other than the abandonment of the proletarian revolution, the abandonment of communism itself. In the Marxist sense, there are no ripe or not ripe enterprises, but society as a whole is ripe for communism. Very rightly noted F. Oppenheimer in the anthology by H. Beck on uh, Vega und Ziel der Sozialisierung on page 16, 17. They believe that they are gradually approaching Marxist socialization by calling the nationalization or municipalization of individual enterprises socialization. Hence, the otherwise incomprehensible mysterious turn of the ripe enterprises. From Marx's point of view, this is pure nonsense. For him, a social society can only be ripe as a whole. Individual enterprises or branches of enterprises can be just as little ripe and socialized in this sense as the individual organs of an embryo are ripe in the fourth month of pregnancy and can be delivered separately in independent existence. Okay, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of sick burns here. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, we don't, he's going to be coming for you here, Alex, in this, in this section. He's totally like to slap me around, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically we're talking here about this general notion of ripeness coming from this idea typically given to Hilferding, you know, the idea of the cartel, the monopolies becoming ripe and then they're nationalised. He talks about through here how this was, was the kind of actual explicit process followed by the Communist Party, even to the extent that they would, sometimes I think the workers would actually nationalise a firm and later on the, the Soviet Communist Party in Russia would actually give them back into private ownership because they wouldn't have been seen as ripe. So we see this, this general idea that, you know, the, this, the nationalization of ripe enterprises as opposed to the revolutionary change in the social relations brought about by the workers in their firms and organizing the firms themselves as free and equal producers. So we, we, we see a, a distinct difference between the approaches to what a communist society is. Does anybody want to talk then on this section anybody put a hand up Emil then Alex the, the rest of the book really fleshes out this this argument really but it's exactly like you like you said it is the, the difference between this idea of of nationalizing all the companies uh, under state control with a bureaucracy that rules over the, the, the economy that that centralizes production etc within the gospel plan etc versus completely different kind of economic laws, uh, which is the main gist of this, this book, really, that we have to base ourselves on fundamentally different economic dynamics of the economy. 
And as such, the, the whole notion of single companies that are ripe to be socialized is complete nonsense. So yeah, that's, it's, it's not as clear yet because really the argument hasn't been fleshed out yet. But um, now that I'm rereading, it's, it's actually, um, yeah, it, it might have been better to put this text a bit later on in the book when the arguments were fleshed out. But I suppose you have to start somewhere. So You might as well start with the fire. Galax. Yeah, I mean, I, I can, you know, as, as I can kind of uh, imagine why they would like return, you know, it, you know, factories that works themselves had uh, appropriated back to the capitalists because I, I can imagine like a bureaucrat thinking, okay, I can control a capitalist, I can't control a whole factory, factory of, of workers. But it, saying that this is the, the abandonment of communism, it does have an air of like a bloke sitting far away, like in a comfy armchair, sitting on his whiskey saying, now, the thing they got wrong is blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, like, your man who wrote this book did actually go to meet Lenin and discuss the stuff okay. in, like, I think 1920 at the Third Congress of the party. So it's not like he was... Actually, that's when he wrote the book afterwards when he was in prison for stealing the boat, I think. Like, so it's not like he was completely you know, an armchair guy like, say, I am, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know shitting on Lenin from like a hundred years in the future, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that he was involved in the struggle. And so like, I, I do take the point, like, you know, I take the point that in the, in the revolution, things got go different ways. You don't have control over stuff, but I would kind of push back on that a bit by saying, I think that like, I, I do think that the style of, communism that they were going for the Bolsheviks was more the Hilferding approach than Marx's approach. I, I think the, the stuff backs up there. Now, yes. I think the Hilferding's approach might have gone a lot better than it ended up going in, in Russia if the material conditions were a lot different. Yeah. Okay, that's what I would say. Like I, I, I think if if you had radical radical revolutionary social democrats in germany as the as the major element and they had their revolution in germany the revolution would have been different and i don't doubt for a second it wouldn't have been despotic as the soviet system degenerated into but i do think that they were both actually going for that type of thing but like yeah the armchair stuff i know it's easy to like certainly i'm a fucking armchair warrior you know let's let's get that straight um okay donal uh yeah so i just wanted to kind of maybe uh just have a think about this and say, you know, the, the likes of Hilferding and Nurith and these guys kind of, I think what they were looking at was how do you organize an economy without market allocation and private ownership over the production process and kind of how do you get over the, the law of value as it would have been seen? And I think they, I think especially Nurith, but possibly also Hilferding from what I remember, they, they looked at and rejected labor time planning from a central planning point of view. And even if you speak to, to Leninists today who've read this book, what they'll often kind of say is that what communists should be doing is trying to abolish the law of value and that Appel's ideas and these kind of ideas are more like a modification of those laws and so a kind of step backwards from, from Leninism. And I think what Appel's deeper point here he's making kind of, or he's setting up to make at this point in the book is you can't just like nationalize industries and then abolish the, this kind of inherent like laws of capitalism 
that in fact the state just reproduces them. So you need a different systemic approach and then he lays it out. So I think that's what, what he's setting up here. Yeah, that's very well put. Anybody else want to jump in on this section before we head on? Anybody put their hands up, want to give it a read? Alan S., good man. All right, see, the right of command over the working class and state communism. What in social democracy of all shades is considered socialism or communism is nothing more than a consistent introduction of the forms of organization that capital adopts in and through its process of concentration. But what does the organization of production created by capital mean? What does it mean on the one hand from the point of view of the wage workers and on the other hand from the point of view of the capitalists? It is the domination of labor, the organized domination of wage laborers. The Marxist analysis of capitalism leaves no doubt about it. Marx has characterized the social position of the capitalist vis-a-vis the wage worker as having the disposal over the work, i.e. over the workers, in production. The socialization theories of all directions of social democracy all revolve around this one point of domination of the working class. That labor must be controlled and commanded is self-evident for them. And that for this, because it is about a socially unbreakably connected system, a tight central organization is necessary, is just as natural. The task one sets oneself is to organize the command over the workers as comprehensively and centrally as possible, but to place this command itself under the control of the parliament with the reformists or the proletarian state formed by the political party of the wage workers, Bolsheviks. In other words, the domination of the working class is to be tempered by democracy. Within this framework, the directions of the so-called Marxist workers' movement are moving from the genuine reformists to the outspoken revolutionaries who want to destroy today's economic and political organization of society in order to reorganize it. The result is always an apparatus of power with the authority of command over the wage laborers. If the socialist production system is to function after these socialization projects, then the management must, above all, be concerned with securing the disposal of the production apparatus and thus the right of command over the workers. In theory, this is demanded in order to defend itself against counter-revolution. In practice, it is also directed against any undesirable interference on the part of the wage workers. If the workers themselves want to determine the course of production, This striving is presented as an outflow of bourgeois thinking, and these workers are treated as counter-revolutionaries. The development of Russian state communism is an instructive example of this. Okay, let's stop it there. Like, there's a couple of kind of key points here. Just this line at at the end of this one. In other words, the domination of the working class is to be tempered by democracy. You know, and I think that's kind of, you know, what we see in any of the kind of any government that's kind of run in developed countries nowadays, any kind of lefty governments that get in anywhere, even in the non-developed, in the developing and undeveloped countries. That's what the working class actually, their political organizations do. They try to temper the domination by capital. Chris. Yeah, um, it's kind of reminds me like there's that very old reactionary argument where, you know, if you're in power, uh, you must be in power by the will of the people because otherwise they wouldn't tolerate you being in power. And that's sort of, you know, then this must be a democracy, right? I, I feel like that's kind of where the Bolsheviks went in a way. 
And where a lot of like these Marxist Leninist states and, you know, developing countries kind of gravitated towards, you know, it, it's sort of this lazy makeshift for democracy. Well, we're in power. So I guess, I guess people like it. So. Yeah. Or they just can't be asked to, yeah, yeah. to get rid of you for a while. Yeah. Let them wander along their merry way for a while until it gets too shit. Yeah. Until it's completely intolerable. Yeah. It's <laughs> It's what people do with bourgeois parties. Like, look what happens in, like, the UK with the Tories. I think that they'll, they will likely get, like, many, many periods of, like, dominant rule. Like, the, the English parliamentary system is nearly always Tory governments. And every so often, I think people just get so fucking sick of Tories, they put in Labour for a while. But then they quickly revert back to their, their Toryness. you know? <laughs> Anybody else? It's, did another name flick up Kilcher? So it's developing over the last uh, last few pages, and, and and for all I know, it will throughout the rest of the book. But uh, this this conflict is basically describing between the, the the will of the workers and the desire to to centralize and and, and have a sort of elitist state control. To what degree is he is he sort of lining up an agreement with sort of anarcho syndicalism? Is 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 there any sort of commonality here with with, with what they were saying during this period? Yeah, like I, I think we're going to find as he starts to go and look at the different economic theories that were put forth by communists, libertarian communists, anarchists, social democrats, he's going to go through each camp. And like you see that he's aligned really quite closely to, well, I suppose the councilists, the council communists have always been reasonably closely aligned to the anarchists and the libertarian, you know, libertarian communists. So in, in some of it, like he, he actually makes out some of the best analysis has been done by the anarchists. So I think he's really quite friendly to the anarchist and that kind of libertarian communist section. But he, he still thinks that their their political economy is incorrect. And that's what he's going to get them for. So he like agrees, agrees more fundamentally with their desire than the right wing of the Marxist movement. But he totally disagrees with their economic, political economy that they're basing the society on, that it, it won't work. You know, for example, I just uh, have a copy here I read last two, three weeks ago of Anton Panikuk, who would have been in this circle of what's called Workers' Council, his book Workers' Councils. You know, that's actually not printed by a Marxist press, right? It's printed by AK Press. So I think that there's heavy overlap with anarchism definitely along its lines for you know the general idea of independent control by the workers but a very big disagreement over the political economy anybody else emil well at this point in the in the book uh, in the text uh, that argument isn't that's well fleshed out just yet so for example there's this line that's currently uh, on the screen that result is always an apparatus of power with the authority of command over the wage laborers. That struck me at a first reading as strange because a few pages previous somewhere, I'm, I'm not sure where exactly, the argument was made that we need equal rules for everyone in the communist economy to make a communist economy work. So at this point in the text, it can easily be misread and as uh, seen as contradictory because how are you going to enforce equal rules to everyone if you're not having an apparatus that can enforce it? Of course, that, that is an argument still to be made, but it is not quite clear just yet, really, I think. Yeah, good point. Um, there's a lot of this stuff. It's going to take him a time to explicate. Okay, there's another section here where 
He talks about having the command over the workers. He says about the idea for the production apparatus to have command over the workers. In theory, this is demanded in order to defend itself against counter-revolution. In practice, it is also directed against any undesirable interference on the part of the wage workers. Now, we're going to see some stuff in the later chapters where he gets into, you know, the actual empirical evidence of what happened in the Soviet Union about how the workers were actually fighting against their own unions and against the state apparatus repeatedly. So I think this is a deep point. You know, it's probably built into the cake in the in the Soviet experiment because of their need to, to radically industrialise. So it's probably accentuated in that case. Any other comments before we go on to the next little section? Alan? I was just going to say on that next sentence there, after the one you highlighted, any striving is an outflow of bourgeois thinking. Like, that's always how it's framed, it seems like. Whatever the party doesn't like, basically, you can just call that bourgeois, regardless of what it really is. So I just thought that was funny. Do you want to take the next bit then, Alan? Uh, Sure. What is to be achieved now with the central management of economic life established by the parliament or the political party of wage workers? Everyone agrees that exploitation should be abolished. The reformists believe that they can achieve this goal if the state merely takes up exploitation and then channels the profits made back to the workers in the form of social institutions and reforms. The Bolsheviks tried to abolish the laws of movement of today's production system and to distribute the social product both through the enterprises and the consumers in Natura. This soon turned out to be impossible, and the above-mentioned reformist method was adopted. The result is the same in both cases, state capitalism. And then we get into D. Do we want to just keep going? Uh, Yeah, just I want to make a quick point, probably kind of explicitly dealing with kind of the point Alex brought up about maybe they're being harsh upon Lenin and the the Soviet system. At the time, Jan Appel like, brought his ideas to Lenin before, I think, the NEP was put into, into practice. Like, the, there was a failure of this kind of war communism and this in natura. So this was like, we can just deal with tons of steel and yards of linen, but we won't do labour time accounting or money accounting. It was money accounting they got rid of. But at, at the time, like, when they were discussing their new economic policy that was going to be introduced, you know, Jan Appel was over there and made the case for labor time accounting a la Marx, okay, and Engels. And they went, instead of going for labor time as their measure, they actually went to money as a, as a measure. So there was the reintroduction of money after with the NEP. Not that money was entirely gone, but they had tried to destroy the money system to force people into the communist production system. But they found that that w- couldn't work. They couldn't calculate. They couldn't figure out how to do it. So they explicitly chose to go to money as opposed to labor time at that point. Like it was a thing of discussion. Now I presume that the labor time accounting stuff was definitely a minority, but it it, it was up for debate at that time. Kielce. Distribution of means of production and consumer goods in kind as a Bolshevik ideal. The Bolsheviks had as their goal a situation in which wage labor and exploitation would be abolished. They purposely aimed for the abolition of money, which was to come about through a massive inflation of the medium of exchange. The state printers worked day and night to print more and more paper money, which the state used for payments, but for which it did not guarantee any counter value. Notes are fabricated. You can't print enough notes. 
the need for it is even greater than the possibility of fabrication. With the increase in the total amount of money spent, the exchange value, the purchasing power of the ruble naturally declined. The prices of goods jumped daily, a phenomenon that we also know from the German inflation period. The value of exchange medium declined so quickly that those who had something to sell no longer wanted to sell their goods for money. They wanted to sell their goods, but only directly against other goods without using the intermediate form of money. They only wanted to exchange goods in kind. This was just what the Bolsheviks wanted. In a commemorative document of the Russian Finance Commissariat, which was sent to all participants of the Third Congress of the Third International in 1921 in Moscow, this policy of inflation is praised as a consciously applied method of introducing communism. This type of communism would then take such a form that the Central Economic Council of the Soviet state would take control of the production and distribution of goods, eliminating money and trade. It would have to determine for all inhabitants how much bread, butter, clothes, etc. each individual can get and assign them these goods in natura. This should be made possible by conscientious production and consumption statistics. The proletarian economy is, in principle, a commodity economy, an economy in kind. With the expansion of the state economy, first of all, the money disappears from the traffic between public enterprises. The coal mines supply the railways and ironworks with coal without any price settlement. The ironworks deliver the iron to the machine factories. These deliver the machines to the state agricultural enterprises without the mediation of money. The workers received an ever larger part of their wages in kind, housing, heating, bread, meat, etc. Money also dies off as a means of circulation. Okay, let's stop there. So just as a quick question, do you read audiobooks as a profession? Because you should do that totally. <laughs> yeah, it's good. That was good, Kilter. They're just getting into the discussion of what was actually tried. Th this idea of print money so that you constantly print more and more money so that the money becomes more worthless. And that destroys people's confidence in the money system as a way to push people into the communist system. You know, this kind of the communist immature planning and consumption. So instead of like being dependent on your wage that you would get, the state just printed up a load of money and people's money was worth less and less. So they come more to rely on the actual in-kind stuff they're getting from the state. That was actually the actual policy. It's kind of, I, I was I was quite shocked. I did not know that was the, the policy. Before I read this, I thought it was more of a kind of like things going bad in a war and, you know, the ruble was inflated that way. But it seems like it was a lot more than that. Chris? Yeah, and, and yet they complained about hoarding, right? It seems like that's the perfect situation to create massive amounts of hoarding by peasants and workers. Like, oh, you know, your money's worthless. So it's, uh, well, we meant to do that. <laughs> We're going to make terrible economic policy. So, uh, you know, hopefully it'll just spontaneously create communism. It's, uh, it, it, it is shocking, really, the kind of wishful thinking that goes into that. Kilter, I think, was next. Yeah, I was just wondering if printing money was something they felt they need to do anyway. So they, they found a way to, to justify it. Uh, as, you know, which came first. It feels hard to tell from, from the perspective I have. It could easily be that they were making the best of a, of, a, of a really shit war economy situation. 
but they did want to destroy they did want to destroy the money form like like we got to like the, the Bolsheviks were radicals like they did want to destroy the state they did want to get rid of money you know they did want to get rid of exploitation they didn't want to get rid of these things you but this know. was this was so reckless uh, i know it's yeah. kind of it's mad don't don't get me wrong <laughs> It's fucking madness. But, you know, like they, they were radically trying to quickly introduce communism in the middle of this revolutionary period. And this was not out of this was not something that wasn't theoretically discussed, I don't think, at the time. This was like a part of kind of what you would be planning to do. You know, it's just I agree with you. I think it's kind of kind of crazy. But that was it does seem like that was a plan. But maybe it was one of these kind of two things happening at the same time and the justification but yeah this is this is what they they sell this is what they talk themselves about <laughs> it's kind of crazy i think we also had emil well like you i also didn't know this was actual policy at the time from the traditions that defend 1917 revolution uh, i come from a uh, trotskyist uh, left uh, have been a member of the cwi for many years again many years no no longer but anyway so they never talk about this and, and the kind of disaster that it was. You just hear that, well, things were in shambles because of the Civil War and we made the best out of it. But that this was an actual policy I didn't know. So I'm not entirely sure if this is maybe hypable from the text or if there's actual or other sources that we can read about this because I'm now actually interested in uh, reading more about it. Yeah, like I, I think it looks like it's supposed to be a quote from the Third Congress International in 1921. I know they don't have it in quotes, but I assume it's supposed to be based on the transcripts of that. I think he was actually at that one, Emil. That was the one he went to, Jan Appel. So he's probably talking from first-hand experience. I think next is Alan and then Chris. Yeah, like like everyone else, I found this whole section pretty shocking. Um, you know, I, I understand the like it would be an easy mistake to say that communism is about getting rid of money, so let's make the money worthless. But at towards the bottom of thirty nine here, the the start of that quote, the proletarian economy is in principle a commodity economy, an economy in kind. Like I I don't understand where anyone would even get that idea in the first place. Like. Does anyone know where this is coming from? Like, how do you come to that way of thinking? I think it's a kind of a crude interpretation of just like what Marx said would be not in a communist society or what was commonly taught of at the time. You know, we get rid of classes and money. And I, I just think it's like a kind of a crude, crude version of that. Maybe this is more like armchair <laughs> type stuff going on, but like read chapter one of Capital and all this long-winded stuff about relative and equivalent forms of, you know, exchange or the exchange relation and all that. It just seems like anyone who would call themselves a Marxist, I just, I don't see how they could make this kind of mistake. It's just, I don't know, it's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's kind of even just crazy from a practical implementation point of view as well to me regardless of being a, a marxist i just can't it's just it's kind of staggering that this was if this is true which i i i do think because he was there at that third congress uh, that's the one he went to so i presume this is firsthand and i'm sure that like in the annals all this stuff is in there from the third congress 
I think there's more quotes, direct quotes further on, maybe we might come to. But yeah, it it, it is. It, it's just even crazy from all kind of points of view. I, I I'm just kind of staggered by. It. I think we had Emil and then Alex. Just to respond on that point, this really wasn't theorized much because the wager that you can read back in the work of Lars Lee, for example, is that um, they thought, well, we have the revolution, then the uh, Germans will uh, come uh, soon after us and uh, we can have a proper industrialized socialist revolution. And the fact that they didn't, well, they, they had to make ends meet and just started to experiment and just knew fuck all of what, <laughs> what they were doing, really. Uh, and there was some interesting work. Priyabrzezinski, I believe it was the name, one of the economists. Uh, Bukharin uh, wrote a lot about it, of course. But basically, they were on, on new territory that the socialist movement never faced before. So, yeah, this, I, I suppose this, this comes from that, really. Yeah, I'm just wondering, if this was a deliberate policy, and they're printing all this money, what were they buying with it? I mean, I, I'm wondering if, if this is, like, justification for your massive inflation having occurred, and I'm trying to explain that away. I think it would take probably a bit, quite a lot of historical work to get to the... Yeah, but you know, just printing the money doesn't actually do it. You then have to start spending it. Well, they could have done it. Like, if you think about it, if everything was being nationalized, they could have paid their wages with just printed up new money. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Buy your labor power with worthless money. <laughs> what, what, so what massively reducing unemployment by printing money? Is that what they did? I don't actually know, Alex, but I assume it's something like that. <laughs> yeah. Or paying, like, paying the peasants for corn in money that becomes worthless. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know. Yeah, I, I just wanted to comment um, from what I've read on this topic before, like what you'd expect actually have, it's not going to be this, you know, communist society where everyone spontaneously just produces things and everyone gives each other what they need. Like you, you, currencies develop, right? Like ad hoc currencies, like universal equivalents. And I think in the Soviet Union, things like vodka became like local currencies in places. And, <laughs> which I think is funny. Like part of me thinks that maybe would have been a better currency. Cause then, you know, <laughs> it would have led to, you know, the sober people taking, you know, a dictatorship of the sober might, might have went in a better direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to, to respond to what uh, was uh, asked about, what do you do with the money? Well, one of the obvious things I can imagine how, what you would do with it is to go to the world market and buy machinery and stuff that you don't have in Russia just to industrialize and, and, and do all kinds of things in that sense, which is, of course, being done with an ever-diminishing return because the money is just worth nothing anymore at some point. But I suppose that is one of the rationales of such a policy. Yeah, I, I don't think they would have had much success really in the war period because this was really only the civil war period. I, I, I doubt they were being able to industrialize with foreign capital goods during this period, Emil, so much. I think that was more when things settled down afterwards. Well, maybe not industrialize, but to do anything, uh, buy weapons, do, do anything to win this war, for example. Then I suppose that the Russian revolutionaries would be, have been strapped for money and they just started to inflate it. 
but I think the uh, the weapons wouldn't have been like not like the West were going to sell them weapons kind of too much. I think the weapon production was more in the Moscow Petersburg region itself. Anyway, who fucking knows? But I'll still argue with you. I'll still argue, even though I don't know. Next was Alan, and then Alex. I guess just to to kind of go off of what Chris was saying about you know vodka or anything else developing as a universal equivalent. To me, whenever something like that happens, that's kind of ammunition for the state capitalist argument, as opposed to you know non-motor production or whatever else. Which not not to get into that can of worms necessarily, but it seems like that's you know the value form starting to rear its ugly head all on its own. So that, that's all I got there. Yeah, I I concur. You know, value forms will try and always rear their heads when the society's not being run properly. Alex, I think. Yeah, no, it's just a quick one, just to confirm what you were saying. I don't think they were buying stuff from uh, abroad at that time. It, in 22, Lenin spoke about how they just started like contracts with some foreign companies, and that was great, but it was like your very small seeds kind of thing. I don't think there was anything significant before that. Yeah, I think it was in the 20s and the 30s that the Koch brothers' father made all their money. In Russia, I mean, I know he did stuff in, uh, in Germany. But... Yeah, in Russia. The, the main of their family fortune of the Cokes was made building, I think, oil refinery infrastructure for Stalin in the mid-20s, late, early 30s. And while Koch was a, a big fan of the, of the Nazis at the time, I think, too. Yes. That one has really kicked off a lot of comments. It's kind of mad, this bit. It's kind of fucking insane. I think we got to the end of this quote, didn't we? And then the production and distribution calculation. So who who is doing the reading? Is it is it Kilter? Yep. The production and distribution calculation would therefore not be done in money or any other general measure, but only in sums of goods. One would calculate in kilograms, meters, tons, etc. Or finally, only by the number of pieces of consumer goods. One would pass over with a word to the natural economy, which is characterized by Otto Neurath as follows. The doctrine of the socialist economy knows only one single producer-distributor society who, without profit or loss, account without circulation of money, be it metal money or labor money, organizes production based on an economic plan and distributes the standard of living according to socialist rules without foundation of any unit of account. From 1917 to 21, the Bolsheviks tried to realize this principle and the commemorative document mentioned above is still to be regarded as a final extension of these attempts. In 1921, the ruble was stabilized and stable money was returned. It was by no means the absence of the world revolution, nor was the individual peasant enterprise the reason why the Soviet state had to abandon its plans for moneyless production and distribution by calculating in kind and had to stabilize on the ruble. It only turned out that production and distribution on this communist basis were impossible. The Russian Revolution practically proved that production without a unit of account is madness. When trying to redirect the Russian economy, it was right to start from a predetermined plan. The individual operations made their budget plans, which were then processed by the central trust management into a general trust plan. The compilation of all trust plans gave the Supreme National Economic Council an overview of the entire production apparatus combined in the state from which a general production plan, the entire state industry, could be composed. All these plans were based on the calculation in rubles. And why not on the calculation in natura? 
because you can't add up kilos of iron and tons of steel. However, the value of the ruble quickly decreased and the prices of the products rose just as quickly. The budgets were, therefore, only on paper. They had no value for the real production process. Varga, who acknowledges the merits of this inflation method, finds its biggest downside in this. He says, the rapid and continued devaluation of money is disadvantageous insofar as it prevents the stabilization of wage levels, causes wage movements, and conflicts between the workers of the state and the proletarian state itself, forces them to become constant wage increases, makes the calculation very difficult, makes it impossible to draw up a pay proper state budget, and especially to adhere to it. This is one of the practical reasons why the Soviet state had to refrain from destroying stable money. Already in 1919, it was stated that the calculation of the value of the product becomes more necessary every day, so that the Second Economic Congress of 1919 already decided to calculate the most important state expenditures according to the value of the products. Goldschmidt, page 133. Of course, this is only possible if all production is based on value. The general stabilization of money, therefore, had to follow. The stabilization of the ruble, therefore, meant that state capitalism, which was organized immediately during the implementation of the revolution, stabilized its own laws of movement in the course of its development. In the Russian economy, the means of industrial production passed into the hands of the state. The decision about it, as well as about work, and thus about the workers, and about the work product lies in the hands of the Supreme National Economic Council. The producers have no control over the product. The separation of work and labor product is the essential characteristic of the production. The Supreme National Economic Council can control production only based on the value of the products. It must therefore also calculate the value of the labor force. It must give the worker, in exchange for his labor force, as much right to the social product as the value of the labor force is. That is his reward. The workers are, therefore, wage laborers. The Supreme Economic Council must buy the labor force on the market using the method of the collective agreement with the trade unions, which is also used in Western capitalism. Right. That is four pages of pure madness and brilliance. That was a pleasure to read. Seriously, Somebody in the in the chat said this feels like a, a LibriVox reading. A really well read, Kilta, very soothing. Okay, so there's so much good stuff in here. Where do we start? So just the general gist was that if you if you were only in your accounts recording the tons of steel, the meters of linen, the kilograms of cheese, whatever, you've got nothing to compare these to each other without a common unit of account. So under capitalism, you know, that's money. What he's going to put forward in this book is labour time accounting. He has a quote here. This is from Otto Neurath from Wirtschaftplan und uh, Natural Rechnung, which basically kind of crazy, given what you just said there previously, Alan, about like how it could be a, a Marxist thing. Let's see. It distributes the standard of living according to socialist rules without foundation of any unit of account. It, it, it's it's right there in the. So some, what they're what they're trying to do is is not something so much that's just in the madness of a revolutionary period, but it's also coming out of the top theorists at the time, which is kind of kind of staggering. 
Anybody want to comment on some of the other stuff here? Alan? I just thought that that sentence from Neureth is like almost self-evident nonsense. It's according to socialist rules without any unit of account. Okay, so what rules then? Like, what is he talking about? Alex? I mean, I, I could imagine in a communist society if you'd ever achieved the, you know, from Ichikonto's ability to Ichikonto, that means that you would no longer need units of account. But it's uh, jumping straight in there <laughs> to, to that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like quite sympathetic to the, the revolutions and the, the problems it faced, but it seems like deliberately destroying your own currency is uh, ballsy. Ballsy, yeah. Like you know, it, it, I, I, I would, I would say that I think that I would say that I think a society always needs to know how much labor is involved, even if everything is based on need. Because I think society would still need to know what is possible to be done. Like I, I feel at a fundamental, like maybe in the far distant future where like everything is so incredibly automized that human labor is nothing, that it's like it's zero content, like everything literally costs zero. But I don't think we're on that kind of a planet. I don't think we would ever get to that level. Like I, but I, so I always often feel like even if society decided to put everything into the general the GSU units or the GSW units we're going to get onto later on in the book that we'd still want to know how long it would take to do stuff, what we could do if we changed, if we didn't want to grow broccoli anymore and we wanted to grow something else, what would that mean for our our, our, our society? So I, I think... Well, you, you wouldn't then need it for, like, how much of these units do I have? Yeah, you, you wouldn't. How Specifically, my own personal consumption, you wouldn't need it. You just consume whatever the hell you want. Yeah, for, for, for planning, yeah. For, for planning purposes, uh, yeah. Yes, you must do, yes. yeah. Now, there was some other... I think Donald might have been next. Yeah, so I'm just going to comment. I think, you know, the thing about this is it was kind of even more radical than Appel's idea in the sense that they were, you know, kind of saying you don't need any exchange of equivalents, so you just have direct allocation, you know, like communism in the final sort of sense. And I think the inspiration for this had come from... I mean, it was there already, but it had been strengthened a lot by the First World War, where this... Uh, I think Nurith had been involved in the military planning or economic planning in the um, Austro-Hungarian state. And they were looking at, you know, the way that they were able to directly allocate for the war. And they felt that, you know, this kind of superabundance you were talking about, maybe it's not needed. You know, maybe you can do this foreign economy and then uh, you skip over the whole problem of, you know, exchange of equivalents and you can go directly to to the end product. I think that's what they were looking at. But I think it was... They quickly realized, as you said, that it wasn't going to be a runner, you know. Yeah, I think you're correct. He did work in those. Yeah, I thought it was the German. Yeah, and it was, I think, one of the things that actually turned him on to social democracy, if I remember correctly, Emil. Well, I agree with uh, what you said about economic planning. That will always be a necessity, even though personal consumption is quote-unquote, uh, free of charge in, in a communist society. So I agree with that, but, I mean, we see, with hindsight, of course, that this was complete nonsense, what the early Soviet Union was trying to do. And I don't see why they wouldn't realize the same thing. So <laughs> what were they thinking? What's up with their minds uh, when they tried to do this? Because uh, slightly later uh, on in the text says that Obviously, this is, wasn't going to work. 
and I made a, a sideline notes. Well, duh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, that this is this is this is nonsense and, st and stupid to 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 try to attempt it. So I'm not sure what they were trying to to do. Really, they they must have realized this themselves. Really, I'm really puzzled by this. Yeah, uh, I guess just speculating on how they might have made this kind of error. Like maybe this is flowing from the what we talked about earlier about uh, you know basically the the social democrats, whether it's you know reformist or Bolshevik, they had this idea of basically controlling by political force, you know, turning capital to you know your own ends or whatever. So maybe that was the thinking. It, it, like maybe the the socialist rules here really just means the political will of you know, communists in power, just maybe, you know, just through sheer political will, you can command the economy to, to do this or that. Maybe that's why they thought they didn't need a unit of account. I don't know. Well, I think it comes more from the idea of these giant cartels internally wouldn't have been using money to shift stuff around they actually do that a lot of times nowadays in the big firms you know they do use money transactions between different sectors of say like a car production firm they might actually have a different factory for a certain amount and they might actually i think they do you know monetary exchanges between different branches but at the time i think they're saying that it, they didn't in these large stuff so they're looking internally into like a blob of a capitalist firm that internally to it it's not using monetary amounts for exchanges. It's not using the market internally. And they think that like, oh, well, if it works internally in a firm, we can then just increase that to society. But the reality is that the actual blob of a capitalist, you know, monopoly or whatever, massive firm working within capitalism is conditioned externally by the value form. But internally, they're able to do their processes. But the actual output is being conditioned externally and I think they misunderstood that. And I think also the general scale, it's one thing talking about a firm that specializes in the production of wheat or whatever the hell, who knows what, you know, a car or a tank or something. And then applying that level of complexity up to the planners for an entire society is, is also an order of difficulty larger. Kielce? More of an observation, just thinking about as satisfying as a slam dunk as this is of, of, of that whole period. It could have been written by anybody. This, 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 this could have been written by someone from the Montpellerin Society. It's, it's a devastating critique of, of that period. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's probably the best critique I've read of this, just for pure writing, you know. <laughs> it's, it's amazingly clear. Let, let, let's just have a look here at this little bit here. They talk about, like, the reason why they had to stabilize the money that they found that like it was extremely difficult for them to produce certain quantities with the crazy oscillation in prices all over the place. So they started to actually try to get a handle for the value as in capitalist value in certain key commodities to be able to make sure they could produce them correctly and efficiently. But the problem is that like one kind of commodity has got loads of other commodities entering into it and you can't get a, uh, an idea for the value of this important commodity unless all the supply chain for that are also integrated into the value system for your calculation. So this idea of trying to calculate maybe the value of steel or whatever, something like this, so that they could make sure they had proper production of it, this meant inevitably that that, that this filtered out into society and that we needed a basis then for a measure. and. 
when the measure was chosen, it was the measure was chosen to be monetary value as opposed to labour time accounting value. I, I think like that choice would undoubtedly, I think, be linked. I think regardless of whether they were always, you know, that, that Alex was saying that maybe they wanted to do it differently and it went down this, this route. But I, I think like when you're having that choice and you're the Bolsheviks and you're in power and you know you need to industrialise, you know, you, you go, which measure is going to allow me to industrialise easier? A, a money one or a labour token one where the rate of taxation has to, is obvious to everybody what's happening. So I think there was, even if they weren't like taking Alex's point on board, even if they didn't want to go down this way, there was really core material conditions that would push them down this route chris uh yeah i think one of the biggest problems is the majority of russians probably didn't want to industrialize if you're the peasants just wanted to continue their lives the way they've you know always done only with a little more autonomy and maybe a few more commodities from the cities but i don't think you could have ever like even with bukharin's model you could ever really convince them to go full tilt the way the uh, Bolsheviks wanted. I think this this sentence I'd like to read again. I think this sentence here is hardcore. The stabilization of the ruble therefore meant that state capitalism, which was organized immediately during the implementation of the revolution, stabilized its own laws of movement in the course of its development. You know, and I, I, I think that's, fundamentally correct we're just going to call it state we'll give it the name they say state capitalism for whatever we want to go to call it but like that the stabilization of the ruble was actually stabilizing the laws of movement of the society that came that was the thing that stabilized the economic life then he goes on to say like again the producers have no control over the product the separation of work and labor product is the essential characteristic of the production and, you know, the final meet your new boss, same as the old boss sentence at the end. The Supreme Economic Council must buy the labour force on the market using the method of collective agreement with the trade unions, which is also used in Western capitalism. And that's that's just a kind of a, a fact of the development, the historical development of what went on in the Soviet system, at least in the in the 20s, from what we're going to see later on. I'm not so sure how long the trade unions really actually lasted as organizations. Okay, so we'll just do the rest of the chapter for next week. And unless anybody has anything to say, I think we'll sign off. Are we good? Thanks very much, Tom. That was great. Thanks. That was great. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, 
and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar.